Transport by Alex Ames. You are listening to The Transport, a sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Kumiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. Alex Ames, that's me. Hope you will have a good time. I feel honored that you decide to spend that precious time with me and my book. The Transport is an audiobook podcast of the full-length novel of the same name. If you like what you hear and would like to support me, go over to your favorite web store and buy the book. Search for Alex Ames, The Transport, and you'll find it. It's available as ebook almost everywhere and as paperback in many online stores. If you like what you hear, tell others about it. And if you like the others, present them with my book for Christmas or birthday or whatever other occasion you can think about. If you really, really like what you are listening to, check out my other books. I write mostly thrillers and mysteries and a little young adult, so check it out. On my website, you'll find the whole lot. Point your browser to www.alexames.net and you're there. If you like the transport and are totally hooked and are unable to wait for all the remaining installments of the story that will come out in the next month, easy. End your misery. Buy the book. It costs about the price of a venti Starbucks latte and tastes just as good. With that said, let's get into the story. The Transport by Alex Ames Part 1. The Transport Chapter 1. Herbert Herbert Frommer was nervous. He knew this was a natural reaction many people had to endure, at least once in a while. Like before a big exam, when asking a girl out. Or on the morning of an important day that literally meant life or death, not only for him, but for the community. Herbert considered himself cool under pressure. It was one of the reasons he had been assigned to his current job. Diligently, he had managed his duties for a long time, year after year. Both of his jobs, his day job as a facility manager at Legion Analytics and his night job. But he had done it, and today, as it all came together, Suddenly, his body had the shakes, and he was nervous. Racing heart, butterfly stomach, sweaty palms, dry mouth, the whole ten yards. Like asking a girl out. Not that any girl would prefer to go out with him. Thin brown hair, round face, and a beer belly made him definitely a swipe left in the Tinderverse. Tinder didn't have much of a critical mass here in Veracity, in the middle of New Mexico's nowhere, of course. 
nor did it help being a mid-40s guy who drove a 15-year-old Toyota Camry. Dr. Carling, you got a minute? Herbert knocked on the office door of his boss. Geoff Carling was the founder and CEO of Legion Analytics, a highly esteemed startup leading in biochem analysis, a tech jewel in the New Mexico desert. Herbert was as far away from Carling's pay grade as you can get in a company full of chemists, bioengineers, doctoral degree holders and other brainiacs. But they were a small company with open-door policy and it was common to approach senior management without appointments. Carling emitted an energy befitting a dynamic, grey-haired marathon enthusiast. He had just arrived at work, a venti Starbucks coffee still in hand, and was about to start with the onslaught of emails and meeting preps. Herb, what can I do for you? I found something strange in the basement. Herbert wrung his hands and did not even need to act nervous. Carling gave him a smile. Define strange? A mystery. Oh, we scientists love mysteries. What's up? I think you'll need to see to understand. It's unexpected and I need your guidance, Herbert explained. Now you have my interest. Lead the way. Carling glanced at his watch. I have my first meeting at eight. Let's make it quick. He ushered his facility manager out of the office. Senior management resided on the upper fifth floor of a converted old factory brick building and the two had to ride the elevator down to the basement. Floors three and four hosted most of the biolabs doing their on-demand genetic and biomarker research and molecule production that presented the majority of Legion's business. The lower floor hosted non-lab scientists and administration. I've never been down here like... Ever, Carling said when they stepped out of the elevator and found themselves in a corridor with concrete walls painted in light green. So clean. And I don't say this because it's your area of responsibility. Herbert was slightly out of breath as he could not walk as fast as his boss. We keep it spotless to meet any spontaneous inspection. No messy corners in this company. He took out a key from his pocket. Now a door with a key lock, Carling mused. Must be unique by now in an otherwise fully digital company. No biometric scanners down here. Yeah, it's kind of a legacy anachronism. Carling gave Herbert a curious look. Maybe the choice of words had given him away. Usually their small talk circled around baseball or hockey. Herbert unlocked the door that featured a prominent yellow plastic danger high-voltage sign. He swung the door inward and switched on the light. The room was about 600 square feet and mostly offered sturdy metal shelves placed in neat rows that held various analytics and monitoring equipment, similar to what could be found upstairs in the regular labs. Thick cables and tubes collected under the ceiling and ran to the depth of the room, vanishing into a hole in the wall. What? Carling was a bit confused. A lab? I told you, a mystery, Herbert said. Is this our lab equipment storage? Carling shook his head as if to clear it. 
most of the equipment was switched on and appeared to be in various stages of processing. Is this a backup site to something? I was wondering if you could tell me, sir, Herbert asked and wished Carling would be more curious and wander around. No, I am as confounded as you, Carling peered as some of the monitors, whose curves and data columns made no real sense to him. What is this equipment measuring? Sucrosal levels? Of what? We have no diabetes investigations. His voice trailed. Then he noticed another door behind the third row of shelves. What's behind here? Something you definitely should see too, Herbert said and led the way. The second basement room was even bigger than the first one. Instead of lab equipment, this one was filled with shelves full of large glass tube containers with metal tops and bottoms. Each of the pots was about three feet long and a foot thick, standing upright, polished and clean, row after row after row, all filled with the same white milky fluid. The cables and tubes spread out into this room and connected to the glass tube tops. It was warm and the air held a slight pungent smell like in a greenhouse with rotten plants. I, I, Carling just stared. How many containers? Hundreds? They all look the same. He stepped closer and peered at the milky, foggy fluid inside, tapped against the solid glass with a finger. The fluid appeared to move gently within. No idea, didn't count yet, Herbert lied. But there's more, check this out. In the middle of the room stood a large old-style metal bathtub. In it, the same foggy liquid. The pungent smell grew more intensive. Let's call security. We need to find out what's going on here. Definitely nothing under my watch. Maybe Daryl knows. Daryl Grant was Legion's R&D head. This looks expensive too. If this turns out to be a secret side project of someone, there will be hell to pay. What's this tub for? It's for the same purpose as these here, Herbert stood beside a table on the left, where a long row of loaded, small syringes were laid out on white sterile cotton cloth. Carlinger's eyes roamed the room, coming back to the glass containers. For a second, he thought that he detected movement inside the glass tube, inside the fluid. How do you know? Carling asked while he still explored. In one corner of the room lay a large stack of folded towels and packs of diapers for seniors. Diapers? You are my first convert in a long time, Herbert said, and with a smooth motion stuck a syringe into Carling's upper arm and pressed the plunger. Chapter 2 Sina The large transport plane touched down, and Sergeant Sina Washington's stomach took a deep dive, but recovered momentarily. She hated flying. Give her a truck any time, anything from four wheels and up, and she was a happy soldier. But planes? She did not need to look left and right. The plane held no windows, and she was its only passenger. 
the loading space of a C-17 Globemaster was made for a lot more soldiers, equipments, a truck, and now felt like an empty church. An extremely loud and bumpy church, though. She felt the taxiing movements of the big bird through the hard-netted seating. No luxuries in Uncle Sam's Air Force. Sergeant? The loading master appeared from his seat behind the cockpit, addressing today's lone payload, shouting over the turbine noises. Gather your stuff, we're here, and instructed to not approach any further and take off right again. Where's here? Sina shouted back, but the airman had already moved to the back of the plane where he pressed the big button on the sidewall. The huge loading ramp underneath the plane's tail started to move downwards with a whining electric noise. A wailing siren and red flashing lights made it clear to everyone on either side to get the hell out of the way. Zena threw her well-read Stephen King paperback into her canvas bag and slung it over her shoulder. Her disappointment in the latest It movie had motivated her to read the book again. She walked out of the ramp into the late morning heat of a bleak desert landscape. The second her feet touched the ground of the runway, the loading ramp wind its way upward again, plane's engines revving up. She stepped aside towards the apron of the concrete runway that stretched out endlessly in both directions and watched the plane take off again. It rose into the air with a roar, made a lazy turn and vanished westwards into the yellowish-blue of the desert sky. Talk about being sent into the desert, girl. Sina had no idea why she was here. There was nothing around except desert, the endless runway the only sign of civilization. Low, water-starved bushes, a flat landscape and some hills in the distance. Best guess was Nevada, New Mexico or Arizona, definitely the southwest. The trip had taken them four hours from Fort Lee and this was clearly not Kansas. She dropped her canvas back on the ground and kicked a stone. It was early morning but hot already, hitting the hundred sweat immediately forming on her exposed black skin. She was an Afro-American woman with short black hair at 5'8", giving her a boyish look. She put on her olive-green army cap and her sunglasses to shelter herself from the brutal sun. It wasn't a long wait. A dust cloud announced company long before she could hear it. It was an ancient-looking jeep, not the real World War deal, but maybe from the 70s or 80s. Someone did not favor this place with budget, it seemed. The jeep dashed down the length of the runway and came to a stop ten yards away from her. A young lieutenant jumped out. Sergeant Washington? Would you believe me if I said no, sir? She answered and gave a salute. The officer did not smile or laugh, gave more of a tense nod and saluted back. He had a freckled face and reddish hair and looked more high school than army command. 
Sina had just turned twenty-five and was still at odds to be commanded around by people younger than her. Her new commander looked stressed, wore a thin-lipped mouth and tense body language. Well, he was an officer. Smiles not required. I'm Lieutenant Ben Kimmick, your CO for our little project. Welcome and hop in. Sina threw her bag onto the back seat and sat beside Kimmick, who turned the jeep around and put the pedal to the metal to race down the runway again. The hot wind tore at Sina's head and she had to hold her cap. What is this place, sir? The place that the world forgot, Sergeant, Kimmick said grimly. It doesn't appear like much from the outside, but wait until you see the hangars. There was something after all. A concrete feeder road led away from the runway, still wide enough to take the largest of planes. Kimmick made a sharp turn that had the tires screeching. When the bushes gave a free line of sight, Sina saw that the hillside consisted not only of rocks and bushes, but also of three giant steel hangar doors, all set back into the hill's rocky cliff to avoid detection from curious eyes in the sky. The closer they got, the larger the hangar doors loomed, each easily fifty yards high. This had to be some sort of ancient Cold War bomber base. The middle hangar door had a small truck-sized gate that stood open, guarded by four heavily armed soldiers, all very alert. They checked Kimmick's credential, though he must have left the hangar to pick her up only a moment before. And they scrutinized Sina's papers. One guy vanished behind the gate to return with a red-colored lanyard-bound plastic card without any print on it. Wear this all the time, sergeant. All the time, the guard barked. That avoided any misunderstandings. Thanks, Sina said. Sir. Kimmick gave her a curious sideway glance. Something's bugging you, sergeant? Sina swallowed, closed her eyes briefly. She had to cut back her frustration, otherwise she would be back behind a Ford Lee desk quicker than she could make up sassy one-liners. No, sir, just tired and hungry, and curious why I'm here. Kimmick looked at her a little longer, then started the motor again and drove through the gate. Curiosity, hunger and sleep. We'll solve your request in that order, sergeant. The hangar behind the giant doors was huge as expected. Huge, huge. A cathedral made of rock blasted into the hillside. It could hold four football fields easily. And this was just the middle hangar. On the right side, along the walls, an arrangement of living quarters stacked along the wall in prefabricated metal containers three levels high with lighted windows, walkways and staircases. An assortment of jeeps and trucks was parked on the side in an orderly fashion. The temperature was much milder than on the outside, the layers of solid rock made good insulation. But the biggest surprise was Kimmick's target in the middle of the otherwise empty hangar space. Sina's heart beat faster. 
a multi-chained MMTU system, the biggest and meanest transport vehicle of the US armed forces, if not in the world, filled a large piece of the hangar. If something really heavy needed to be moved from A to B, this was the tool. It had been Sina's command until last year, so she knew the system inside and out. But the sight of it, in its maximum payload configuration, always gave her the goosebumps. This vehicle had the size of a football field, a beast made of hundreds of large wheels controlled by computerized hydraulics. Kimmick stopped the jeep near the front of the MMTU and both got out. Sina stayed beside the jeep, unsure what awaited her. Someone shouted from between one of the connected transport modules. Officer present! And suddenly various soldiers came forward from the depth of the machine, climbing down from the nine feet high tires and the transport unit's platforms. Sina shifted her weight from one leg to another. This was a different type of homecoming, Definitely no roses for her. The crew eyed her a while, some whispering to each other. Some faces Sina recognized, some were new to her. Kimmick waited for attention. From behind the group came a stocky, moustached man running. He pushed aside the rest of the gang and stopped in front of Sina. Washington, they send you? Of all the logistics specialists in all of the U.S. Army, they sent you? Zena stared at him unflinchingly, outwardly cool, devastated on the inside. The other team members watched the confrontation play out. Zena had the feeling they all knew what this was all about already. Mac, good to see you too, she nodded. She didn't mean it, and every one of her former crew knew it. Except for Kimmick, apparently. Great, you have met First Sergeant MacDonald, our loading master before, he said, overplaying the tension. That makes bringing you up to speed a breeze, right? Mac gave the lieutenant an are-you-kidding look, but Kimmick's eyes briefly became steely and Mac knew better than to give a flip comment, unlike Sina. Kimmick addressed the assembled unit. Sergeant Washington will replace Master Sergeant Fromer, who had the unfortunate accident yesterday. And to Sina's benefit, he had a fall from one of the units, broke his ankle. Washington, I understand you are familiar with the MMTU units and VHDT operations? Yes, sir, Sina answered. VHDT stood for Very Heavy Distance Transports, which explained her speciality perfectly. And the MMTUs were perfect to do just that, because it stood for Massive Mass Transport Unit. A new assignment must have been organized at the last minute, indeed if even her new commanding officer had no clue about her background. But maybe it was for the better. Washington, you're under my command and will be responsible for the rolling wheels. First Sergeant MacDonald and his team take care of the payload. Security will be handled by an Army Rangers unit and the Air Force. 
We are supposed to report for a first briefing in 15 minutes. Understood, sir, Sina said, although she did not. But officers always liked to hear that their underlings were up to the game and who wanted to let down an officer. Mac will introduce you to your team. I'll pick up both of you in a few minutes for the briefing. Questions? No, sir, Sina said, though she had. She saluted and retrieved her canvas bag from the jeep. Kimmick gave a small salute back and drove towards the quarters. Mac waited until the jeep was gone. Then he turned to Sina, started to speak, but stopped himself, just held up a finger at Sina as if he was giving her a warning. Then he swallowed, turned to the team and barked, Rolling wheels unit, come forward, club of loading slackers, back to work. Part of the group went back to their tasks and Sina's team remained. Some changes around here since you left us, Max started introductions. Fenton, Shiva and Gorsuch you know of course. Private Carl Gurken has been with us for two months now and is managing the front power units. Ludovic and Kasper came over from the 22nd. They were sick of lugging around a hundred tons or less and wanted to play in the big league. They handle hydraulics and the rear power units. That brought smiles from the newcomers. In the heavy mass logistics business, MMTU transports were the holy grail and everyone was apparently very motivated and proud to be assigned to the unit. Your team looks pretty much unchanged, Sina said. Yeah, they would die of a broken heart should they ever leave me, Max said, not smiling. Sina looked at her little platoon. She played with the brief idea of saying something about her reason for leaving, but this was not the time. What was there to say anyway? The rumor mill would fill in any blank for the newbies. We seem to be prepared for something big and the rig is at maximum configuration. What's the status? She nodded her head towards the giant transport monster. Ivan Gorsuch, the most experienced specialist in her unit, spoke up. He was a six-foot-four giant with Russian roots, reliable, sensible with a deep voice. 98% availability. The remaining 2% are being worked at by Fenton and Shiver. ETA by when, guys? Fenton showed eight fingers, not to disrupt his chewing gum jaw movement. 20 hundred hours it is, or no dinner for you, Sina said which brought a light chuckle from the team. Ludovic, what are you working on? She asked the pale, overweight private first class. Running link diagnostics. All units are synced up. Casper has just finished testing the hydraulics and tire pressure control components, Ludovic replied. We are good to go, apart from the few non-critical problem tickets. Anyone, any idea why we are here? Sina asked the group. Resettling rare birds, Fenton proposed, which brought a laugh, easing the still tangible tension. Yeah, big, big birds, Gherkin added. Meg shrugged. We arrived yesterday, but no one told us anything. We were asked to redeploy here directly from Al Duid in Qatar three days ago. 
spat out onto the dusty concrete floor. No expenses spared, arrived yesterday and started assembling the units. Two days to move the full config? That is... impossible. But someone made it possible. There's always a first and here we are, tired but ready. That must have cost a fortune. 16 planes for our own 800 tons of config. The rest was flown in from various other parts of the globe. Yesterday the airstrip outside resembled O'Hare for a few hours. I learned they yanked part of the equipment away from Gomez in Guam, just when he was about to move the local power plant from one end of the base to another. Max smiled grimly. I bet they love us, sitting in the dark for the coming week. You hate Gomez even more than me, Mac, Sina said, but did not dare to break a smile. Mac gave her another long look. You have that wrong, Sina. At least Gomez didn't kill one of us. His hands clenched into fists. There it was. The elephant in the room hadn't taken long. You want to repeat that, Mac? Sina took one step closer to her old friend and mentor, fists ready at her side. Washington, face it, you killed the kid. And paid the price for it, Sina heard the blood rushing in her head. Demoted from master sergeant to sergeant? You call that paying the price? Mac turned away in disgust. Tell that to the parents of... Sina kept Mac in her sight and her old friend did not disappoint. Quick as a cat, the barroom brawl proven loading master came for her and tried to land a fist at Sina's face. For him, the kid was personal. It made him angry and predictable. She had seen it coming a mile away and stepped aside, letting momentum do the rest. The arm passed her face with an inch to spare. She grabbed it in one fluid motion in a vice-like grip, pulled Mac even further, blocked his step, and he landed flat on his belly. Mac looked chubby, but he was a package of muscles. Quick as a cat, he bounced up again, ready for another throw at Sina. Gorsuch stepped between the two sergeants, always the mediator, and made a no-no sign with his finger at Sina in case she had planned a follow-up. Which she had, actually. Gorsuch knew her too well. Mac had over a hundred pounds on Sina's petite frame, which had to be compensated somehow. Mac grunted and tried to get around the private. Get out of the way, Ivan, that's an order. I agree, Sina hissed, also ready to rumble. Let's clear this once and for all. Sometimes common sense beats rank, Gorsuch said and stayed put between them. We all want this operation to go smoothly and then Sina will leave us again, right? His look told Sina that he, too, was seething on the inside, blaming her of the kid's death. Right? Any problems? The voice of Lieutenant Kimmick asked. In the heat of the moment, they had not heard him coming up. And he was not alone.
Alex Ames here. Sorry for the little interruption. This story will continue momentarily. If you like a good thriller, check out my 2020 novel, COVID Trouble. COVID Trouble is a novel in my ongoing troubleshooter series, featuring the corporate troubleshooter Paul Trouble. COVID Trouble takes place in Paris, France after the first lockdown of 2020, just when life seems to normalize again during the worldwide life-threatening pandemic. And France is getting ready for some well-earned summer vacations. Someone is poisoning supermarkets with the virus. Is it a lunatic? Is it a terrorist act? Paul Trouble will find out. A lot of bullets will fly. There are car chases, gunfights, rooms full of dead people, deadly fire traps and many, many, many ways to die. COVID Trouble is available as ebook at most online retailers and as paperback at Amazon and some other e-tailers. Check it out, it's a ride. It's inspired by the current events of that crazy, crazy year 2020. COVID Trouble is the name, Alex Ames, the author. That being said, by the book. And now, let's jump back into the transport. Chapter 3 Charles Charles Norman was not really surprised when he got asked away from his desk at the CIA headquarters by three Secret Service agents dressed in black suits. His own boss stood on the sideline with a worried frown on his face, phone at his ear. The man worried about himself and the fallout on his department, no doubt. Maybe worried about Charles too, but then... Maybe not. He wasn't a good boss. Dr. Nauman, please follow us, were the only words he heard from the leader of the group that had flashed his credentials. The look on the faces and demeanor did not invite discussion. And Charles had a degree in history, not martial arts. His colleagues spoke in hushed tones, averting their eyes while Charles and his black-dressed entourage maced their way out of the cubicles of the European desk section to the elevator and out of the lobby. One agent joined Charles in the back seat of a black town car and they took off. After a minute, he knew that their destination was DC. They crossed the Potomac ten minutes later, helped by the flashing blue and red light clipped on the roof of the limo. The White House, it was. Charles handed over his driver license and they entered through the side entrance, driving up to the side of the building. They led him up a small set of stairs into the original central building, not the west wing where the Oval Office was located. Maybe 20 people waited to pass the security check. It was like a beehive, a constant low-level noise of conversation. Langley's CIA headquarters and the Pentagon had a similar buzz, but not as intense as here. Countless staffers and guests around him shuffled paper while waiting or were discussing the state of affairs and votes on the hill. 
One Secret Service agent talked to the checkpoint security and Charles received the preferred treatment and could bypass the queue. Someone scanned for weapons and dangerous objects. Charles had no briefcase with him and had forgotten his phone and the charger on his desk, so the procedure was quick. While he had his arms raised, Charles recognized the national security advisor on the other side of the security check. She was in a quiet conversation with the secretary of the army, surrounded by a small group of officers and staff. Looks were thrown at Charles. Not so nice looks, especially the military ranks gave him evil eyes. Ooh, ooh busted Norman. Dr. Norman? The National Security Advisor stepped forward as soon as Charles had passed security. Nuna Patel, follow me. She was an overweight woman whose parents had immigrated from India to the US in the 90s. She had risen to the highest levels in her profession and was known to go head to head with the generals and agency directors alike to get her will. Uh, good to meet you, madam. Charles shook the offered hand and hoped his nervousness didn't show too much. A White House visit had not been in his job description, but had been inevitable when his predecessor had briefed him. Too many things had to be set in motion, and despite the secrecy around Project Tinken, someone in the highest levels of the military had to start asking stupid questions why the instructions of a simple political CIA analyst were moving so many wheels in the army and air force. Not the Oval Office? Charles asked when they took an elevator into the basement. Are you kidding, young man? There are more microphones in the Oval than touchdowns the Washington football team has scored all season. You get the real deal, young man. They rode down several floors. Bare walls greeted them, long corridors in all directions. This is the part of the White House where the serious things happen, Patel explained. As long as it doesn't involve rubber hoses and pliers. The naked concrete made Charles think about bad spy movies where people vanished in wet basements. But this was the US, wasn't it? And he had done nothing illegal. Perhaps. They came to a door guarded by two marines and Charles recognized it as a bubble room. They had similar equipped ones in Langley. A marine soldier guarded the room. Phones, smartwatch, anything electronic remains out here, sir, the soldier commanded and pointed at a row of lockers beside the door. Charles and Patel did remove all possible spyware from the pockets and wrists and entered. They sat down on a stylish meeting table with six uncomfortable chairs around it. The less the room offers, the more difficult it is to install a bug, Patel explained. I'm very curious what your story is, but we will wait. You caused some stir, I tell you. Uh, apologies, Charles said. He was not the strongest small talker and Patel seemed comfortable with silence. No phones to twiddle with, they simply waited. The President of the United States entered, his Secret Service detail staying outside after a quick look into the room and a double look at Charles. Hi Nuna, is the civilized world safe? 
the president asked. He looked like the countless photos and TV clips and in reality appeared a little smaller than on the screen. He had developed a grey head during his first term but carried the seniority well. Everyone except for the dry cleaner who lost my favorite cocktail gown, Mr. President, Patel said, jumping up. The president turned to Charles, who also had risen. And you must be the man who keeps everyone awake. Charles took a deep breath. His heart was racing. This was it. Sir, an honor to meet you. Patel introduced him. Charles Norman, CIA, one of our analysts for Europe. The president's handshake was firm and trained to perfection by a million shakes a year. We have 30 minutes, so let's use them, the president stated. Charles, my generals found out that strange things happen in their bailiwicks and their own staff is not allowed to talk about it. They dug deeper and discovered that a low-level analyst at the CIA called Norman was calling the shots to move million-dollar equipment into the New Mexico desert, into a base that most of the military had never heard of. And he sets up a giant security parameter that will disrupt the air traffic in the southwest for more than a day. Rumor is you're planning to move something from A to B. Something very big. Questions go up the chain until they hit my desk. And I have no answers. He looked at Charles. And here we are. The President of the United States is asking analyst Dr. Charles Nauman what's going on. Sorry for the rookus, Mr. President, Charles admitted and started to speak. But the President waved him off. He glanced at a slim briefing file that Patel had opened in front of him. Charles Martin Nauman, born and raised in Philadelphia, 30 years old, BA in History from Columbia, PhD from Harvard, specialized in European Affairs, started at the CIA five years ago as an analyst. He looked at Charles. That sounds to me like an ordinary man, not like someone who suddenly has the authorization codes to shift major resources of the Army and Air Force around. Now you... I am a gatekeeper, Charles blurted. Ah, remarked Patel. This explains it. The president curiously glanced at both. Explains what? Nuna Patel started. Within the US government, we have a special secret layer outside of the regular reporting hierarchies. They are called gatekeepers and handle super-secret long-term situations or operations. What kind of operations? Patel hesitated. I have no way of knowing. I only know that the concept exists and that a secret amendment to President Truman's Invention Secrecy Act of 1951 legitimizes it. The content remains with the gatekeepers and anyone performing actions on behalf of a gatekeeper is required to keep it secret. The president looked at Patel. Am I not allowed to know? Really? I thought I'm the commander-in-chief who's supposed to know everything. Patel considered her answer. The amendment specifically avoids involving too many political leaders. 
The gatekeepers are only reporting to us when needed. The president eyed Charles. I like you less and less. Our country relies on checks and balances in the world full of political and military power and someone acting without oversight at large scale. That makes me nervous. The national security advisor continued. The gatekeepers are used for cases that are so secret and sensitive that the CIA compartmentalizes their knowledge to the extreme. In his day job, Charles is a regular analyst within the CIA, writing European briefings. He is moonlighting as a gatekeeper and only comes into the open when something needs to be done. The president asked Charles, Is this the first time you need something to be done? Charles looked at him, shifting on his chair. Yes, I took over the job just a year ago from my late boss and mentor, Patrick Steed. Oh, I remember Patrick, the president mused. He was in front of the oversight committee for the CIA while I was a senator. Tough guy, but fair. He was gone very quickly, I understand. Cancer, sir, Charles confirmed. He briefed me shortly before his final sick leave and gave clear instructions for a pending gatekeeper project. I started activating the first items on the plan about six months ago. Things picked up seriously last week, Charles shrugged, and the extensive scope triggered some rumors. How does this work? You tell people a secret code word and they start working for you? Well, yes, in a nutshell. The command structures of all military branches recognize my authority codes. Many people cover only their small part. In my operation, there's a small group within the army that keeps the physical parts safe from discovery. They are specially screened scientists to investigate, selected people from the administration to create the pockets of funding. Funding? You mean whatever you are guarding is funded off the books? Nothing worse than a government spending scandal a year before the elections, the president said without irony and with a sharp look at his national security advisor. Charles kept calm, outwardly. He still wasn't sure whether his gatekeeper role was fully legal, despite what his late mentor Patrick Steed had claimed. Some of it, yes, but most of it is hidden in the operational or project costs of whatever the various army and government branches are doing. But what I am guarding is definitely outside of congressional oversight. It's delicate. Yeah, Congress is known to keep a secret, the president said dryly. Are you even allowed to tell me what you are doing? I could stop the whole charade, call off the army and the air force, throw you into one of our secret prisons and set up a committee to investigate your secret. Maybe rip Truman's secrecy amendment apart. Charles understood that the president meant every word. You want Miss Patel to stay during, he asked. Norman, talk. Charles cleared his throat. Then let me brief you about gatekeeper project Tin Can. It had been classified by President Truman himself in accordance with the 1951 Invention Secrecy Act amendment. The classifications were reconfirmed by President Kennedy in early 1963 and in 1994 by President Clinton. 
You are the fourth president to receive the tin can briefing, sir, Mr. President. Man, he was nervous. The president starred at Charles a little longer. Go on, son. Tell us about your tin can. This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. And again, my shameless self-promoting plug, if you liked it so far and can't bear the suspense, buy the book. If you can bear the suspense, buy the book. And another shameless self-promotion, if you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too, feel free to contact me at alex.ames.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at alexameswriting, one word. The middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you. And that's it, for real. Wherever you are, whoever you are, thank you, take care, I hear you next time. This is Alex Ames, this was The Transport, over and out. <laughs>